You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. This story in Mark chapter 10 begins with a young urban professional running up to Jesus, kneeling, asking him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm sure some in this room are thinking, it couldn't be a question I'd be less interested in this evening. Eternal life? This sermon's not for me. Perhaps you're a secular person. You're only interested in the here and now and the thought of talking about eternal life. Really? That's not going to relate to to my life in the here and now. I don't want to waste my time thinking about eternal life. I want to live this life. At first pass, you may not think you're interested, but I want you to pause for just a moment and ponder what this question is getting at. If you're honest, you will admit there are times where the secular explanation of the world does not fit the depths of your human experience. There are times when scientific naturalism does not explain the compelling beauty of art or of a story or even just the power of a peaceful moment. And you're not alone. More and more, secular people are willing to say that they often experience times where there's a feeling of supranatural meaning, a sense of longing for something beyond this life. You might even call it eternal life that secularism cannot explain. The admissions now in the 21st century of so-called secular people who have these kind of moments is becoming so prevalent that now philosophers are coining terms for it. One philosopher named Charles Taylor calls it fullness. That's a little term for it. And then a pair of philosophers, one from Harvard, one from uh, University of California, Berkeley, call it the whoosh. When an unexpected moment of meaning and significance comes upon someone who otherwise has no explanation for it in their kind of scientific, naturalistic explanation. Here's Tim Keller's explanation of fullness and whoosh. He says, sometimes one experiences a fullness in which the world suddenly seems charged with meaning, coherence, and beauty that break through our ordinary sense of being in the world. Some who experience this know unavoidably that there is infinitely more to life than just physical health, wealth, and freedom. There is a depth and wonder and some kind of presence above and beyond ordinary life, it may make us feel quite small and even unimportant before it, and yet also filled with hope and unworried about the things that usually make us anxious. So maybe, I'm asking you to consider this with me tonight, maybe the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is just as relevant as it's ever been. And this interaction of Jesus with this young urban professional almost 2,000 years ago has something to say to you tonight. Maybe it's not all that foolish to ask about eternal life. Maybe it's brilliant that when you come across one of the greatest, most famous teachers in the history of the world, that you ask him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let's look then at how Jesus responds first to the man and then also to his disciples who were there and listening. 
there are three layers of Jesus' answer to the man. So we'll move through those three layers and see how he responds. Layer number one, you cannot earn eternal life. That's layer number one. The man's asking a question, but Jesus isn't just a quick answer guy. It's not like, Jesus is not Alexa. Tell me the answer to eternal life. Jesus is a teacher. He's not going to just answer with a quick pat answer. He's going to move through a a didactic process. He's going to teach the man and teach his disciples. He's going to get down to verse 27. You heard that as Josh read. With man is impossible. But let's see how he gets there here from verses 17 to 25. Watch how Jesus' response keeps escalating. First, he hints. And then finally, he expresses the, the impossibility in verse 27. The hint is in verse 18. Look there at verse 18 if you have a copy of the text in front of you. He says, no one is good but God alone. The man could have heard Jesus' answer if he had ears for it when Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. You're not going to come into eternal life through your doing, through your goodness. It will not happen through your earning, through your achieving. The man's question assumes that there's something he can do. He says, what must I do? But Jesus is ready to disavow that right away. Before he moves into his other points, he wants to disavow right away. You cannot do this. You cannot earn this. You cannot achieve this. So first, Jesus is going to go after the man's performance. Then he's going to go after his possessions. And in doing so, he makes plain for us here 2,000 years later two pathways that are not open for us in trying to inherit eternal life. So first is performance. You might call this obedience to God or doing good. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, for those of you who have heard the Ten Commandments before, any one of those stick out as strange? Murder, adultery, stealing, lying, honoring father and mother, these are part of the Ten Commandments. We've heard these before. But then one sticks out. Do not defraud. It's not one of the Ten Commandments. This is Jesus' application to this rich, young professional. He's making an application to him. And I suspect Jesus nails him on this one. I think he's probably guilty of defrauding. But even then, this man answers, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And it's easy to, to disdain a person like this. But be careful. Be careful. Because you find out that you're disdaining yourself, because we're all like this, certain degrees. This naivete is easy to look down upon until we see ourselves in it. But amazingly, Jesus, who is good, that's, that's what he said, not like this man, and at the bottom, not like us. He, Jesus doesn't look down on him. He doesn't disdain him. He doesn't despise him. He loves him. How marvelous. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. 
I take such great encouragement from this. I hope that, that you would as well. That even when Jesus could snicker at or scorn my lack of self-knowledge, instead of looking down at me, at us, he looks at us with love. And this is not uncharacteristic of Jesus. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, he looks upon the leprous man with pity. Then we hear three more times, Mark 6, Mark 8, Mark 9, how he's looked upon people with compassion. Hear the heart of Jesus here. When he looks on you, he looks with pity, with compassion, with love, not with scorn. This is how Jesus handles annoying, frustrating, inconvenient people as he moves through life. So obedience and good deeds or performance cannot earn eternal life. But then Jesus goes after wealth and possessions. Verses 21 to 22. And possessions here is really the heart issue. I think, he's, I think he's trying to keep Jesus at arm's length by talking about performance. The heart issue is his love of money. Verses 21 and 22. You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So Jesus hinted at his answer when he said, no one is good. Then he challenged this rich man with do not defraud. And now he puts his finger right on what is keeping this man from embracing Jesus and having eternal life. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. This is, this is tailored specifically for this man. This is his heart issue. This is not Jesus' declaration in the same way to every single one of us. Don't take this out of context into an extreme. This is Jesus putting his finger on this issue in this rich man's life. And doubtless, this rich man thinks that his great possessions are an asset for God's kingdom, not a liability. The disciples think the same thing. Look at verse 23. Jesus says to the disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then how do the disciples respond? The disciples were amazed at his words because they're thinking that wealth is an advantage for the kingdom. Don't we want the rich guy? Doesn't God want the riches for his kingdom? And Jesus senses their amazement and he doubles down on it. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples in verse 26 are exceedingly astonished. That's the word there. And we've seen this throughout Mark's gospel. The word amazed happens seven different times. Astonished, six different times. Everywhere Jesus is going, he is amazing people. He's astonishing people. He's not doing what they expect. They have their categories for how it's going to be. And he astonishes them over and over again. He's doing it again here in relation to this rich man. And he's saying, the disciples come back and ask, who then can be saved? If the rich guy can't be saved, who then can be? Us common folk surely can't. We don't have to offer the kingdom of God what he does. And Jesus comes back and answers, it is essentially impossible for a rich man 
to enter the kingdom. With man, it is impossible, verse 27. Now, what about the camel and the needle here? Um, Perhaps this is totally new to you. This is one of Jesus' more famous images. Uh, Maybe you've heard someone explain before that uh, the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem, and it was a low gate. And so for a camel to get through the eye of the needle, this gate, the camel had to get down on its knees and shimmy under the gate. That is not what Jesus is talking about. That, that, that misses the context. That misses Jesus' whole point here. His point is not that you have to get on your knees and shimmy. His point is, with man, it's impossible. You cannot do it with your performance. You cannot achieve eternal life with your possessions. And if not the rich with their assets... Then who? So to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer is, you cannot do. You cannot earn it. You cannot achieve it with your attitude or your actions. Good performance can't do it, and great possessions can't do it. With man, it is impossible. But I'm so glad Jesus has more to say. So number one, you cannot earn eternal life. Number two, only God can give eternal life. Verse 27 is the main point and the most important statement in the passage. So the disciples have been exceedingly astonished at the camel and the needle, and they've asked, who can be saved? And Jesus answers, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. It is such good news that Jesus doesn't end with salvation, rescue, eternal life is impossible. He doesn't end there. He doesn't end with with man, it's impossible. He has more to say. This is what we Christians call the good news or the gospel, that not just that all things are possible with God, even rescue from our rebellion against him, even eternal life is possible with God. Notice now how the question has changed from what must I do to who can be saved. So the question for the man is what must I do? Now the disciples are asking who can be saved? To the question what must I do, Jesus has answered very clearly, you cannot do anything to earn it. And now to the question, who can be saved? Jesus' answer is, those whom God saves. We cannot get ourselves to God by doing. Only God can bring us to himself. But the question it leaves is, how? It's one thing to say, man can't earn salvation. Only God can do it. But the next thing I want to know is, how? How does he do it? How do I get to be a part of it? How do I get connected to that? Jesus hasn't yet made clear how it is possible to have eternal life. Yes, God can do for humans what we cannot do for ourselves. But how does he do it? How do we get access to it? These are pressing questions. We're going to come back to them in just a minute. But Peter (laughs) diverts the conversation from the stuff I really want to know. One of the disciples named Peter steps up 
And instead of asking what I think would probably be a really good question to ask this time, he's going to check his own insecurity and make sure that he's on the right side with Jesus. And so Peter says, verse 28, see, we have left everything and followed you. How does Jesus respond? I would anticipate a rebuke. But when Jesus could have responded with disdain to Peter, like he could have to the rich young ruler, instead, he loves him. He has more good news to give him than he already has. Not only is God able to rescue us and give us eternal life, but as Jesus will say in verses 29 to 31, any sacrifices we make in the process will be far surpassed by what we receive from God. And note here, there will be sacrifices. Sacrifices are necessary. Jesus welcomes all, and he affirms none. For everyone who comes to him, there is something in us, like this rich man's love for money. There's something we're holding on to, trying to keep Jesus at bay with our good deeds, something we can reform so I don't have to really change. I don't want to really give up what my heart longs for deep down. Give me some space, Jesus, to have what I really want and let me do something externally so that I can get eternal life and then have what I really want there without my heart being changed. But Jesus won't allow that. There will be sacrifices that will happen as we release our grasp of what we've been clinging to. So number one, you cannot earn eternal life. Second, only God can give it. And now number three, God's rewards will far outweigh your sacrifices. God's rewards will far outweigh your sacrifices. Here's what Jesus says in verses 29 to 31. And hear it to you. Maybe you have that thing in mind that you're holding to that makes you want to keep Jesus at arm's length. Maybe just perform some good deeds for him so you can hold on to your true treasure. Listen to verses 29 to 31 in that light. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus turns the world upside down. That's why there's all the amazement. That's why there's all the astonishment. The first will be last. The last will be first. Riches in this world will not be riches forever. And poverty in this world will not be poverty forever. This life is not all there is and is just the prelude to eternal life. And sacrifices made in this life for Jesus' sake and for the message of eternal life, God will repay, he says, a hundredfold in this life. That's remarkable. Don't miss this. This is surprising. I would expect for Jesus to say, the sacrifices you make in this life, God will repay in the next. 
That's not what he says. He says, the sacrifices you make in this life in following Jesus, God will repay a hundredfold in this life. And then he says something even greater. A hundredfold in this life, and then, then what? If God makes up for every loss in this world, a hundredfold here, what do we say about what he makes up for eternally? A thousandfold? A millionfold? A trillionfold? We have a word for it. It's eternal life. Maybe you profess yourself to be secular. You think, you think eternal life is a myth. Or maybe you profess to be a Christian, but you're mainly interested in the hundredfold here and now. And just to be clear, when we talk about the hundredfold here and now in this life, we're not talking about the so-called prosperity gospel, that God gives health and wealth and material prosperity in this life. No, the hundredfold in this life is so much bigger than that, so much better than that, so much more satisfying than that, so much more enduring than that. It's so much better than a mere physical house. It's a spiritual home. It's a place where you really belong. It's more satisfying than physical brothers and sisters and mothers and children. It's true family. People who genuinely care about you and have your eternal good in mind. And in particular, it's a heavenly father. And even as it comes with persecutions in this life, we are not alone. We have a spiritual home and spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers and children and a heavenly father and all that just in this life. But what God offers in this life pales in comparison to what he will give in the coming life. And if what we receive in this life is a hundredfold, what will we say about what is to come? What will it mean to have all things new, for God to make all things new, for there to be a new heavens and new earth and a new city, better than any city that's ever come before, where we dwell in true peace with God himself? And what will it mean to have God himself wipe away every tear? And for death to be no more, for there to be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, what will we call it? I'll tell you what Jesus calls it in verse 30. He calls it eternal life, which brings us back full circle to the question that the man asked at the beginning, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I said a few minutes ago that uh, what Jesus hasn't done yet, what we haven't yet seen from Jesus is the how. How does God do it, and how do we get connected? So as we close, let me point you to two small but very important details in this story. We passed over them so far. We're going to circle back to those now. The first one is in verse 17. It's how it starts. 
as Jesus was setting out on his journey. So this encounter with, the rich, with this uh, rich young man has a specific context. Jesus is going somewhere. Jesus is going on a journey. To where? Look at verse 32, right after our passage, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, and he knows what's going to happen there. He's already told his disciples this, chapter 8. Chapter 9, he's going to say it again in verses 33 to 34, as we'll see next week. He'll be delivered over to wicked leaders. He'll be condemned to death. He'll be killed. And then he says he'll rise three days later. That's the first detail. He's headed to Jerusalem to die. The second detail then, verse 21, is the one thing that the rich young ruler lacked. Jesus said to him in verse 21, you lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. One thing. It sounded like he said three or four things. What's the one thing? What's the one thing he lacked? It's not selling all that he has. That's just the means to the one thing. It's not giving all he has to the poor. That's a means to the one thing. One thing you lack, go sell all that you have, give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Me, Jesus says, is the one thing you lack. You lack one thing, me. The one thing he lacks is Jesus. Remember how the rich young ruler addressed him at the very beginning. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus very quickly just responds before he gets on to the next stage, very quickly says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. He doesn't say, don't call me good. But what he's saying is, you don't even know how right you are about my goodness. And when Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, with God all things are possible, he's not just talking about his Father in heaven making all things possible, but himself. That's why he says, follow me. He is good because he is God. All things are possible with Jesus, and he is on his way to Jerusalem to die to bear the penalty for our sin and our failure, not his own, so that we might inherit eternal life. How? Not by our performance, not by great possessions, not by whatever it is we're holding on to in our hearts to keep us from Jesus, but through faith in him. One thing you lack, Jesus. Believe him. Follow him. Release your grasp on whatever it is that is keeping you from him. And you will inherit eternal life. So as the pastors come now to the table, we gather here each Sunday as brothers, sisters, mothers, children, with our great heavenly father, 
to celebrate together who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And here we taste not only some of the hundredfold grace in this life, but we remember every week, as sure as this is bread, as sure as this is wine, that eternal life is possible and real in Jesus. This is first and foremost a meal for the members of City's Church. But if you're among us as a guest this evening and you would say, Jesus is my Lord, he's my Savior, he's my treasure, we'd invite you to eat with us. If you would not yet say that Jesus is your Lord, we just ask you to let the, uh, the bread and cup pass as, you, as it goes by. And when the service ends, I'll be standing here at the front. Pastor Jonathan will be standing here at the front. And we would love to talk with you more about this Jesus. Any questions you may have about what it would mean to, to follow him. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.